Think. I'm here live with Ted Chilowitz. It's This Week at XR. Uh, this Week in XR, live uh, at AWE 2022. Uh, and we're here with Sean Frayne from Looking Glass. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. Been a Amazing while. Amazing to be back in the Rio. Woo! And you brought a spaceman with you. I did, yes. <laughs> Always got to bring props, you know. Oh, uh, you have them. Yeah, so <laughs> this is the Looking Glass portrait. Uh, world's best-selling personal holographic display. Folks can get them now. Um, a lot of folks here at the show have built amazing stuff with them. Um, part of what we're sharing at the show is a way for folks who have already made holograms for physical holographic displays to share them to any device over the internet. So um, I can tell you more about that. Sure. Before you do that, yeah. tell us about what is going on with a spatial display. because. Most of our listeners are actually audio only. Right. So <laughs> cool, we'll cool. encourage them to go watch the video because it's brought a looking glass device with it. I will describe it. Some 3D content for us. I'll paint a picture. So what, these are actually some um, Snapchat holograms that are showing on the looking glass. Bada bing, bada boom. Um, and what's happening, for those of you who are just tuning in audio, uh, through audio, um, there's a little display sitting next to me at 7.9 inches. And it is shooting out a hundred different perspectives of the world simultaneously. Uh, so you can see three-dimensional content in a group of people without having to gear up. Um, all of the holograms that are on this display, like this amazing little tree creature here, um, which was just on the Blender's, uh, Blender website um, that we pulled into the looking glass, um, this is created through some of our software tools that let you take anything in the universe of 3D, stuff you've made in Unity, Unreal, Blender, even portrait mode photos, and transform those into holographic media that until today have only been able to play in our physical holographic displays, but now those holograms can run in mobile devices, VR, AR, and our looking glass uh, holographic displays and others in the future. You correct me if I'm wrong, but this is totally self-contained, right? It's not yeah. connected to a computer or a phone or anything. It's running off my oh, cell phone right? battery, right. yeah. So that's amazing. And it's a consumer device, right? Someone can go buy this. That's right, 400 bucks. Where do you buy it? Uh, for the small one. For the small one, Wait, yeah. Do you have, tell, tell us about <laughs> the product line here. Sure, so um, we're, we're the hologram company based in Brooklyn, New York, and there's about 50 of us in the team uh, who work in all different facets of 3D, um, optics, electronics, uh, 3D graphics, game development, you name it. And we have a hardware lineup of holographic displays that let groups of people without a VR Air headset see three-dimensional holograms. Um, we have three sizes of the systems that are out there now. So the 7.9-inch looking glass portrait, then we have a 16-inch and a 32-inch landscape-oriented system. All of them run on the same uh, software, and that's the second part of our companies. We make all of the software that turns the universe of trillions of pieces of 3D content into holographic media that can run on our devices. And now, as of the announcement this morning, um, at hologramsontheinternet.com, uh, on anyone's devices. And there's an optimal viewing device, or optimal viewing distance where the, the pixels converge, right? So it feels like it's seamless and looking good to get a little bit close it out. to it. Check it out. You start to see the dots, but still pretty good from 
four feet or three feet away. Yeah. Um, when you get to the bigger devices, yeah. now we're at pretty exotic displays, right? 8K displays that you right. can convert. So are you starting to explore that type of technology as well? Give us a sort of sense of the roadmap of where things might be headed for a higher fidelity. Yeah, so the Looking Glass Portrait is a great system for individual creators, um, and it's a kind of like holographic swatch, um, if you will. That's right. So we have the larger scale systems, and those definitely, um, you know, level up not only the dimension, but also the color depth, the contrast, the fidelity, um, and the overall amount of information that you're getting because they some of them use 4K and 8K displays. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Have you seen some of our larger systems before? A number of the different companies that are doing it there's one of three or four companies that I know are really looking at 8K or higher. Yeah. Because anything lower than that is you have to be sort of far away from it to really you know resolve it properly. Yeah. Kind of any distance that you're comfortable with makes a really good image. Like, Absolutely. Displays aren't that expensive. That's right. Huge, but now they're relatively customized. Yeah, and you know, it's um, we're sort of riding that wave, both in terms of display density, but also in terms of compute power to process holographic content on the fly, and everyone that's making stuff in 3D now. So how much, do, how much do these things cost? 400 bucks. 400 bucks for the portrait. And then for the big mama 32 inch? Uh, that one's 20 grand. Um, and are people making content for Looking Glass now? And sort of selling it to other Looking Glass owners? Or Yeah, they, they are. Um, Folks don't need to make content specifically for Looking Glass, though, because we have 3D content. Right, we have plugins into Unity, Unreal, Blender, you name it, um, and so folks drop in that plugin, and then basically they run they, it right off their desktop. That's right, or they can export a holographic image, a holographic render, or a holographic rendered movie, and then share those with other people. So that's happening a lot. And is there with this device or the more exotic devices an interactive component where you can actually drag the object around the 3D image of the yeah. around. So the entire system's all real time based. So you can so the the nerdiest way to put this is uh, the entire light field updates at 60 frames a second. So um, that means you could have a controller from a headset or an ultra leap motion controller, whatever, and be able to interact live with the holographic content. Where do you think this technology is Five years, or even ten. Yeah, is this the future of television? Do you think it's ubiquitous? It's it's not only the hardware, which we think we make the best system, the best display to display holograms, because um, groups of people can view them. It's viscerally three dimensional, um, and so that's going to weave its way through our lives. Big systems, small systems in our homes, like there'll be, you know. Amazon Alexas that are holographic systems in the future. There'll be televisions, other displays that are showing three-dimensional content in our homes, schools, hospitals, but also the holographic media itself that um, people are starting to share in our community. And with what folks can sign up for today on holograms on the internet, this pilot program to share those holograms across the internet with anybody, 
we think it's going to be as big as the shift from photograph to film or so, radio so television. Let's just be clear. Today you launched holograms on the internet. On the internet. That's right. Holograms on the internet. Dot com. Dot com. That's right. And when I go to this website, my phone is being used right now. So I can run over there and take a look at it. So, I'm trying not to. It was a it was a personal challenge. <laughs> um, so this hologram that you see here on uh, the Looking Glass portrait is also now shareable directly oh, on the internet. Oh, yeah. So this is a For rendered out. You, uh, listening to audio only, Sean is showing us the exact and you're same just thing. On a browser. You're not just on a browser. Yeah, just, on, just on his mobile browser on his smartphone. And I can embed this hologram by clicking this embed link on anywhere: Wikipedia, New York Times, my own website, anywhere that the internet exists. And I can view this not only on my phone, not only on desktop. If I have my Looking Glass connected to my computer, this hologram pops up three-dimensionally in my looking glass. And if I go to that same link or anywhere that hologram's embedded on the internet in a VR headset or AR headset, it's there holographically, three-dimensional, like a hole punched in the browser itself. So is the business rationale for doing the holograms on the internet.com <laughs> uh, to promote looking glass or is there another business strategy? So our goal is to get 3D creators, the widest possible audience. And so, um, it, you know, some people have looking glasses, but a lot of folks don't. So we want them to be able to enjoy holograms that 3D creators are so making as well. you're giving them a virtual looking glass, so to speak, it, it, until they can buy a, a real one. I mean, uh, there's a lot, folks have a lot of different devices, you know, 11 million Quest 2 headsets, you know, a billion phones that can take portrait mode photos. Um, and tens of thousands of these looking glasses. So um, to get our 3D creators in our community and the tens of millions of other 3D creators and beyond, the, the billion people who have a portrait mode capable phone that can take 3D um, holographic photos, to get them the widest possible audience, we can't just have holograms only viewable on looking glasses hardware, um, even though we think that's the best way to view them. Sounds obvious when you say it. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come see. It's great yeah. to see you. Yeah, like, likewise. And, uh, Very high fidelity. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, uh, almost holographic. Yeah, almost continue, holographic. Continued success and growth to Looking Glass. Thank you. It's always exciting to see what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. We're here with Ashley Crowder. Ashley is an old friend from the industry, uh, which of course is one of the great things about AWE. We all feel like we're having a reunion in addition to trying to get some business done with one another. Ashley, welcome and thanks for making time with, for us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ventana. We're a 3D commerce platform, so we make it incredibly easy to take existing manufacturing design files and instantly optimize them so they're ready to share on your e-commerce site, B2B sales, social media, or game engines. And we work with lots of fashion clients like VF Corp. I spoke with today here, which was fun, uh, Diesel, Hugo Boss, and, and others. Let me understand just a little bit about how 3D is coming to the internet. Yeah. Um, we see from time to time, I think on Amazon and other e-commerce sites, you can mouse and, and turn things around and, and exploit them as, you know, the traditional method, of course, is that there's a bunch of 
um, thumbnails and you click on the thumbnails and then that's the way you see different angles or close-ups. Um, so that's the way things are changing, right? We're moving away from those little uh, thumbnails and moving toward more of a complete view of a product. Exactly. So instead of flat 2D images or videos, the internet is now spatial. So we, so we can have an actual 3D model where you can not only turn 360, but see every single angle. And with the clients we work with, many people design in 3D now for manufacturing. So like AutoCAD and similar programs, because it gives the manufacturers such a better understanding of the product. The problem with those models is they're way too big and not in the right format for web or game engines. And that's where Ventana comes in. So we wrote patented optimization algorithms. It's basically smart 3D compression. So instead of a 3D artist having to sit there and manually fix these files for these different end use cases, our software does it for you. So it makes them interoperable. So is it CAD that you need or can you basically take any kind of junk that they give you and... Not any junk. Uh, we've seen a lot of junk. <laughs> um, but we work with specific design programs. So for apparel, it's Clow and Browseware. Those are the two main ones. For footwear, it's Keyshot and Moto. For furniture, it tends to be 3DS Max and Maya. Um, so we can work with, with any of those types of programs. And because you're working with large commercial clients that have retail output and wide bigness, Deliverables, you're largely looking at display devices at scale, right? Smartphones, computers, laptops, tablets. But are you also seeing client demand or are you preparing for this sort of next wave of devices, these spatial devices that give 3D a chance to really go? I'm just curious. Both, yeah. So, so when we work with an enterprise like Hugo Boss, they launch 40,000 products a year. Like we're talking about massive scales. So they have to have some automation software like us. And we're helping them set up their 3D strategy for, for scale. So they start using, actually they're, they're using some game engines for creating virtual B2B showrooms to sell to Nordstrom's and Saks because people still can't get samples right now because logistics are a nightmare, right? And then you can also, you know, we automatically create a 3D web viewer you can embed on your website. Um, and then, you know, super excited about Fortnite opening up so anybody can publish now. And so, the you know, every single fashion brand should be thinking about how do I sell digital assets in Fortnite and Roblox and these other games. So, so yeah, so we, we prep and convert and optimize the asset for any of these end use cases so that they're actually ready versus having to rebuild something from scratch for each, you know, project that they're doing. some pretty robust announcements around that. Nike and Adidas did very large launch. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it. <laughs> um, no, but um, I, what I can talk about is we did um, we did a big announcement with Meta recently. So Meta has now enabled 3D and AR ads. It's not available to everyone yet. So they use you know they have Spark AR where you can go and build a custom. Uh, AR lens, but now um, with our partnership between Meta and, and Ventana, you can instantly publish 3D and AR ads at scale. So it's all automated. So a social media manager can get on and do it versus needing a 3D artist and developer. So super excited um, about partnerships we're continuing to build like that to make this easy for people because 
there aren't enough developers or 3D artists out there. Well, you bring up an issue quick because it sort of dovetails into my next question about yeah. tell us about the size of your company, structure of the company, and I presume you're looking for smart people that can do this kind of work, right? And it's hard to find yeah. developers with the competitive landscape that's out there. Yeah, always looking for smart people, uh, that's for sure. We are um, 25 full-time right now, mostly engineers, um, mostly from the game engine space. Uh, but in New York, or are you here in California? Um, I'm based in Los Angeles, um, but since COVID, we've gone totally distributed, so we have people across the U.S. as well as Europe. So. Do you find any challenges with that, or is it actually been kind of wonderful for a digital company, yeah. a lot of companies have leaned into this yeah. and find amazing success by the workers have lots of flexibility, creative sort of choices in their work life and home life. Yeah. And actually productivity's gone up. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's worked for us. And look, I don't think it works for every type of person, right? Some people prefer an office and work better that way, but it's worked really well for us. And, you know, we got to drink our own Kool-Aid. We meet in VR on Thursday mornings and, you know, feel like we're together. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the culture of our company is very gamer and techie and it works for us. So you're using Horizon Workrooms to meet? Or how do you have um, so I love VR chat because it's weird, weird and fun. Um, a lot of the team loves Rec Room because they like to so play Capture the Flag. Yeah, we play Capture the Flag. We, you know, we, like, it's, it's for, like, a fun team building, you know, exercise. For, like, I can't, I can only do so many Zoom happy hours. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I do a lot of stuff with my students in VR chat. Yeah. Um, because it's kind of goofy. Somebody's a spoon. Yeah. Another person is an alien. It's so you know, fun. The person standing next to them is a giant horse. Yeah. You know, just really kind of random. Yeah. Uh, That's what you can't easily do in the real world. Yeah. What you lead into. Exactly. 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 Well, meeting in yeah. VR has kind of a, just a fun thing built into it. Yeah. And of course, it's so much easier today than it used to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, an Oculus is 300 bucks. It's less than your iPhone, you know? So, for your clients, what is the biggest point of friction? Ooh. Um, honestly, right now, it's, I think it's education and training. So, you know, we work with a lot of fashion companies. So, we're working with fashion designers who now happen to be trying to learn 3D tools. They're not 3D artists. Um, and so, you know. That's right. They're used to those beautiful, impressionistic sketches. 2D yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, it really and depends. Yeah, yeah, and fabric. Really yeah, yeah. And, and so I think there's companies are at all different stages. Um, you know, what's interesting is I think luxury has been the slowest to to adopt whereas you know companies with high volume have just had you know had to because like that scale again you need tech to help um but the education is key so you know we do monthly webinars on training for 3d and tons of designers come to that um, and we're always looking to partner with more 3d design programs to to do that because i think yeah the more people understand the easier it gets for everybody so we saw that transition with the automotive where they were holding back because they felt like they needed to create the clay. Like yeah. Design is in clay and shavings and constantly. Yeah. And there was a tipping point where it got better and better at the 3D tools, and now most automotive companies are fully leaned into 3D, and they still use clay as kind of a vestige of 
it yeah. has an artistic soul to seeing something built out in a physical way. Yeah. But they're leading into 3D printing, they're leading into 3D tools, they're leading into the kind of technology you bring to the table. Yeah, and you know, they're, you're never going to get totally rid of it. Like, right, if, if I'm, you know, Wolverine Worldwide's client, they're designing a hiking boot, they're going to go test that hiking boot in the mountains and everything. But if you can get rid of even half of your physical samples, you're saving hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're increasing your speed to market, and you're saving carbon footprint, which is also a real cost in Europe for carbon credits. So and you're able to iterate faster. That's way faster. Like, look yeah. at it, change it, get feedback, change it again, and then go ahead and build your physical once you've got to a point where exactly. you've bought in on it. That's the value. Exactly. Yeah. So, is the metaverse hype helping or hurting uh, your mission? Oh, I think it's totally helping. So, thank you, Zuckerberg, for that talk. Uh, I know people are annoyed at the word; it's everywhere. But, but honestly, it 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 has changed the conversation. So, executives at companies have said, "We need a three D strategy. We need a metaverse strategy." Right. So. Um, I think it's helped a lot. Well, I can help you with yeah. that metaverse strategy. We can help. <laughs> we are happy to help build your 3D workflow and make it easy for you and automate it. So, Ashley, thanks for making time for us today. I've yeah. been following the development of your company for years yeah. <laughs> uh, from New York in 2017. Mm -hmm. So it's great to see what you've grown it into. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Sure. Avi, good to see you. Hi. This is uh, Ted Shilowitz. Um, reporting uh, from our weekly podcast This Week in XR, uh, and you have some very interesting things to talk about in your world, what you're doing. Uh, so tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, the, the group that you work for, and uh, what inspires you right now. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I have um, about 30 years in XR at this point, a little over 30 years, uh, starting on the VR side of it. All the things everybody's saying about the metaverse today, that was me 30 years ago. And so I understand everybody's excitement and where they want to go. Uh, but that was also 30 years ago. So I've done a lot of, a lot of stuff since then. Uh, and since then, uh, for the last 12 years or so, I, I um, was embedded inside multiple major companies, helping them uh, figure out the future. Uh, some of them I can't talk about, but let's just say figure out the future of where they want to go. Uh, at Microsoft, it resulted um, in the HoloLens. I was one of the first people, I was the first technical person working on the HoloLens. Uh, at Amazon, I helped uh, to craft the, what's called the Echo Frames now. We didn't have a name back then. Um, and I spent three years at Apple, and I, and I can't talk about anything about that. Um, uh, so I have a strong interest in trying to help the field. Uh, I wanted to get into the field initially because I wanted to tell stories and make things just like everybody else. And then I figured out it's going to take another however many years to build all the stuff that we need to build. So I got busy building stuff. I'd still like to get back to making storytelling uh, that, I, that I was um, excited about. Lately, I've, I've, I've left Apple. And so I left in 2019 and I've gone back to being independent uh, and consulting and, and have many companies that I advise, like uh, Campfire, uh, Tilt5, a bunch of other really, really fun companies that I help out. Um, do my own thing as well, I'm doing a lot of writing, so I have a long list of Medium articles that I've put out there. Uh, and the latest thing is we're starting this group called the XR Guild. And the purpose of the group was we, we identified something that seemed to be missing from the field. Uh, doctors have the Hippocratic Oath. Right. We don't. We don't have a, a sense of what is a common set of ethics and principles in this field. And so we went about trying to think about how do we make that happen. And so rather than try to focus on 
policy or trying to change the minds of various CEOs. We just said it's just way easier just appeal to the developers who are just like us, people who are makers in the field, and talk about ethics. So we just want to have a conversation about what does it mean, uh, how do we promote ethical thinking. Um, and so we're launching that uh, XR Guild today uh, at AWE and we want to invite everybody in the field to come check it out and hopefully join. That's great. Well, I, I couldn't think of a better ambassador of someone who has been in the trenches for as long as you have. You and I share a lot of commonality of the things we can't talk about, things yeah. that we've been working on for many years in the background uh, with the different companies that we're involved in. Um, and it sounds like you've had a really interesting career driving the future, right? And, and sort of looking at where things go that haven't really come to fruition for many years after you started to foresee them. So maybe go through some of those key key markers, key things that you saw that maybe still aren't fully here today, that, that you're waiting for a full iteration to hit. Sure. Uh, I think the key is that you got to make a lot of mistakes as you go along. You, you know, we don't we don't do a good enough job learning from other people's mistakes. We often have to learn from the mistakes we have to make ourselves, yep. which is a waste sometimes. But that's that's life. Uh, I think that. Um, the mistakes I made early on were thinking that the metaverse, which was just coined 30 years ago, was going to happen overnight. That we were all of a sudden going to have this 3D world that we all join. And 30 years later, I'm not so sure. Like, I think there's, I've, I've learned a lot of the problems along the way with the way that we conceptualize it and the way that we're going about building these things. And so that's why I'm focusing on the things that I'm focusing on. It's all about having made various mistakes, how can we correct them and how can we stop making the same mistakes? We should be making all new mistakes, all brand new ones, not making the same ones that we've made for 30 years, right? That's sort of, that's, that's my philosophy. And so working on all these projects, my role has always been as an as experienced prototyper. So, so uh, my title at Apple, for example, was the lead of experienced prototyping. And so my job was to try to build things as best we could with whatever we had and see how they work, see what works, see what doesn't work, and make decisions about uh, what what is possible based on the evidence of how good is it if we actually were to achieve this. Uh, I wish more people would do that, spend the time building the things to learn. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe let's not do A, we'll do B or C instead. Uh, and, and it's a really valuable process, worth every penny. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the, the economic impulses of companies that don't have the wherewithal of an Apple or a Microsoft or a Google, um, they're forced into just making those decisions without the iteration process, without the constant sort of viewing through the lens of a consumer and knowing what might work, what definitely won't work, right? And, and you'd only come to that in time with lots of testing and lots of resources. So it sounds like you've got pretty strong insights around that uh, as you can bring them to other younger companies, startup companies, and your own writings now. Exactly. Uh, that you're talking about. Exactly. So while I, I, I can't talk about anything I've done in secret, right. the lessons learned are common lessons that everybody will discover if only they do the same experiments that we do. So so we can often talk about the experiments and the lessons learned without revealing any sort of plans that any companies might have. So I think you would be a great person to talk about the forward press of the wearable revolution that still is yet to come. Uh, as we migrate from a smartphone platform, fully ubiquitous, fully with us all the time, always on, and has so much utility and entertainment value, into something that the form factor will change, and we're starting to see massive amounts of dollars being spent by you know, independent companies well-funded like Magic Leap, as well as Microsoft with their HoloLens, maybe whatever Apple might be coming up with in the nearer or faraway future, what Qualcomm is doing with the underpinnings of all that from a technological standpoint. Where do you think we stand in this XR journey uh, to move past the smartphone? 
in terms of your opinion. So, so whenever that name is mentioned, I always have to preface my answer with, I am not addressing anything related to that company and can either confirm or deny anything yeah. in my answer. So that's very um, So that's my standard answer. Um, but as for the as for the overall question, I think um, I think a lot of people understand the idea that these these devices are converging. All these things are coming together. We may never have one device. That may not be practical. We we have phones and laptops. They have different purposes, right? Different form factors that are optimized. Um, but the technologies are certainly useful. When you can put the same chips in both, that's a big advantage, right? And you can reduce the cost of everything by doing doing it together. I think. I'll share the one thing I don't think people are saying enough uh, because I don't want to just repeat what everybody else has. But I think that the the biggest change that we're going to see that isn't talked about is the fact that that we are going to become the firewalls of the future. Today we have a firewall in our home that protects our home from forces on the internet. But in the future, the glasses are going to be the firewall. It's effectively our boundary with the world. But we can consider everything outside of that as as potentially hostile and that we don't control, uh, untrusted, that everything that must comes through that barrier needs to be something that we're willing to accept coming in, but the inverse is almost more important. We're not gonna be leaking the information out that we do today. We're just a sieve today. But in the future, that firewall will protect our private information from getting out, and that's the best part. When people talk about Web3, the best part of it to me is the self-sovereign identity part, because it inverts the privacy equation and says, the company has to ask for something they want, and they're gonna get it in a form that they can only use it very narrowly within our constraints, within our, 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 our grant of, of, of permission. And that means they're not gonna be able to build those databases about us. And if they do, we're gonna poison those databases. So the, the database lives with us. And the glasses become the filter for what do we wanna get from the world? What do we need to see? And it becomes much more, much less of a common reality and much more of a consensual reality. It's just good and bad. We could have the filter rubble problem potentially because it's consensual. We may not see things that we don't wanna see, but it's also much more pleasant and it's much more tolerable, more so than, than we've, we've dealt with before. And so we will also have to feel, deal with the issue of how do we gently expose people to things that they need to see that they may not want to see. So it sounds like you're pretty bullish on Web3, the, the technical underpinnings of what we commonly now know what they should call the metaverse, that allow more autonomy, more decentralization, a different form of transactional logic tied to the blockchain in many ways. It sounds like you're... You're a protagonist. I, I think I, um, I'd call myself open-minded. I would say I'm not happy with almost any implementation of a blockchain thus far. Uh, I read the white papers mm -hmm. and I said, no, I'm not putting my money in that. I don't think it's a safe investment. That's my personal uh, philosophy. It's not investment advice, but I really did not, was not willing to bet on it. And in some ways, I wish I had just put $1,000 in Bitcoin way back when I started tracking it. could do whatever I wanted today. Said no, my so my ethics actually said no because it was going to melt the planet. That was very clear from the white paper that that was the end result. So didn't want to do that. And I also have a problem with any blockchain that is designed that is essentially deflationary where there's a fixed number of coins, uh, it is always going to lead to plutocracy. By definition, you can prove it mathematically that you, everybody exchanges value, but the people who have more money will win more often of the, of more of the bets because they can they can afford to, yeah, to risk more. the speculative nature of the, exactly. of the, of the it, device. It just results in plutocracy. It does not result in decentralization. It results in recentralization. Okay. So you need a much more intelligent design for what we call Web3 than what we see today. There's only a few things I like, and even those have their problems. I love the idea of, of WorldCoin in principle, um, that we can finally come up with a safe, unique ID for everybody to prove that you're human. The implementation leaves a lot to be desired. There's a lot of criticism about how they've gone about doing it.
Well, it sounds like you've got a lot to talk about. Charlie and I should have you again on the longer podcast to walk through a lot of these things because you are indeed one of the rare thought leaders in this world. So obviously, we wrap up this little mini This Week in XR podcast. Um, tell us how people find you on Medium and other places they can read about your thinkings and, and your musings and uh, you know other other ways they can get in touch. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to find. I think I'm the only Avi Barzev on the internet, as far as I can tell. So just put my whole name together, A-V-I-B-A-R-Z-E-E-V. That's my Twitter handle. That's my Medium handle. That's the same thing everywhere. So I, super easy. Your writings are really interesting, and I encourage people to dive in. Uh, so this is... This Week in XR, reporting from AWE with my, uh, myself, Ted Shulowitz, and my partner in crime, Charlie Fink. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.